Hey, this is Julie Mullins, co-senior pastor here at Christ Fellowship Church right here in South Florida. Whether you're across the street or across the world, thank you for taking time out of your busy week to join us for this message. We hope that it encourages you and inspires you to get more out of life. Some of my earliest memories of school was in a classroom much like this, my hand over my heart, pledging allegiance to the flag, one nation under God. It was President Eisenhower back in 1954 that signed an act that put those two little words, under God, into our nation's pledge. And on that same day, he said this. He said, from this day forward, the millions of school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. Now, little could President Eisenhower realize that just a couple decades later, that the United States Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals would actually rule those two words under God as unconstitutional. And that one ruling would set off a, a debate in our nation for years to come, asking the question, are we really a nation that is under God? In fact, it's a question that we need to ask ourselves today. And what does it mean for us to be a nation under God? I want to give you a little history lesson. America was founded as a nation under the authority and blessings of God. Now, some have tried to write God out of our history books, and they've done a pretty good job at it. But the truth remains, our founding fathers established this nation on the fundamentals of the Christian faith, not simply on religion, but on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Even before the Founding Fathers, it was the intent of the pilgrims that traveled to this new land to build a nation that would be governed by the principles from God's Word. In 1620, they, they launched out for this new world, and as they were on the Mayflower making their way across the Atlantic, they formed together this agreement that has been known now as the Mayflower Compact. In this article, you see the intent and the motives of these first settlers when they wrote these words. They said, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, a voice to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. They went on to declare, we want our nation to be a stepping stone to take the gospel to the nations of the world. In fact, it was in Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement, that they held church services twice a day, every day. And on Sundays, they held services for five hours long and attendance was required. It was mandatory that you showed up. And if you were absent from church, it meant you didn't get your food rations for that day, right? So people were showing up. And repeated absence was actually punishable by public whipping. Well, that's one way to get people to show up for church, right? You know what I'm saying? Now, when our founding fathers gathered decades later to form our country, they would actually look to the Word of God for guidance. Patrick Henry, the man known for shouting, give me liberty or give me death. He also said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was George Washington that said, you do well to learn above all the religion of Jesus Christ. 
See, in 1787, in the early days of the Continental Congress, there was a, a lot of arguing going on on the congressional floor. And the old statesman, Benjamin Franklin, took his, his cane and he pounded it against the floor to get everybody's attention. And, and then he rose up from his chair and said in a very stately voice, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. The Congress then took a two-day leave to go pray and seek the heart of God. And coming back, they voted into an act that at no time would they ever open a session of Congress without prayer. And even today, whether you go to the House or the Senate in Washington, D.C., they open up each session with prayer. Isn't that amazing? Now, it's also sad to me that we can open up Congress with prayer, but we still can't open up our schools or football games with prayer. Come on, right? But praise God, we can still open up our church with prayer. And everybody said, amen. As our nation was being formed, the Word of God remained central. Our schools didn't just use textbooks drawn from the Bible, they actually used the Bible itself. Thomas Jefferson was the superintendent of the Washington DC school system while he was president of the United States. This man who was credited with coining the phrase separation of church and state required that the Bible be read in all grades, in all classrooms, in the Washington schools. That doesn't sound like separation of church and state to me, does it? Someone once said, you tell a lie often enough, soon everybody will believe it. Separation of church and state is one of those lies that we've been told. That phrase, separation of church and state, it's not in the Constitution, it's not in the Declaration of Independence, and it's not in the Bill of Rights. The statement was actually found in a letter that President Thomas Jefferson wrote to a group of Danbury Baptists. See, the, the Baptists were afraid that the government was gonna try and establish a, a state church like they had in England to try to control the other denominational churches. So Thomas Jefferson responded by writing a letter to this group and stating to them that legislature, government, should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof thus building a wall of separation between church and state. But when you read the letter in its entirety, it's perfectly clear that Thomas Jefferson meant that that wall was to be one directional, to keep the government from interfering with the church, but he never implied that Christian values and biblical principles should stay out of government. He was the man who made all the kids read the Bible in school. That sounds like a, a different definition of separation of church and state than what we've been led to believe. There are some politicians today that would make us think that our nation was founded on this principle of separation of church and state, when it's actually quite the opposite. Did you know there was a time when our federal courts used the word of God as their guiding truth? In 1892, the majority opinion of the Supreme Court in a, in a case called Holy Trinity versus the United States, the court said this, said that our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teaching of the Redeemer of mankind. And it's impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions, look at this, are emphatically Christian. Then in 1930, the Supreme Court said that we are a Christian people. The right of religious freedom demands obedience to the will of God. 
And it was Chief Justice Earl Warren in 1954 that said, I believe that no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of our savior have been from the beginning our guiding geniuses. Remarkable, right? Now, unfortunately, our history books have been rewritten and they've removed faith in God from the foundations of our country. We've been told that America was not established as a Christian nation, that our founding fathers were not men of faith. In fact, some have done all they could to try to discredit them. We've been sold a lie that the separation of church and state was a foundation for us to build upon, and we paid a very high price for it. We've been told that our kids praying in, in school would be harmful to their psychological well-being. So in 1962, we took prayer out of the schools. And here's the prayer that they found so damaging to pray. In fact, why don't we pray this together out loud? Would you say this with me? Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee and we beg thy blessings on us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Don't we wish our kids were praying that every day in school? Then we said it would be harmful for students to read the Ten Commandments. So in 1980, we removed those from the walls of our schools. We basically kicked God out of our schools and replaced him with metal detectors and armed guards. Do you know that back in 1940, teachers were surveyed on the top problems that they faced in school with students? Do you know what they were? Well, here, here are their, their top three. Top three concerns, running in the halls, talking out of turn, and chewing gum. I know, today the top concerns are guns and violence on campus, teen suicide and bullying. How have we come so far? And what will it take for us to return our nation back to God? So back to the question, what does it mean for us to be one nation under God? I believe it's more than just asking for God's protection and blessing over our country. When you look at our history as a nation, there was a, a reverence and an honor for God, for his truth and for his word. There was a collective desire to not just stay under the watchful care of God, but to stay yielded to his truth and his authority. In Psalm 33, verse 12, it says this, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Why don't you say that with me out loud today? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now it goes on to say in this passage that all the inhabitants should honor and reverence God. Honor and reverence have to do with recognizing God's authority and rule over our lives. So to be a nation under God, it means that we would be under his rule and under his reign. But the notion of being under God extends beyond the collective identity of us as a nation. It's got to percolate down to our individual lives and be reflected in our personal beliefs, our moral choices and daily actions. For a Christian, being under God implies this conscious decision to daily accept God's authority and to live in step with his truth. Now, when you think about it, a nation is just made up of, of people. The word nation in the original language actually means a people or group of people. So for us to be one nation under God, we have to be a people under God. I have to be a, a man under God. You have to be a person that's under God, that what he says goes. We recognize him as our king and ruler. And by the way, this isn't a democracy. We, we don't get to vote him in or out of office. 
This is a theocracy. He is God and we are not. So if I am a man under God, I must continually put my wants and wishes and the plans for my life under God's authority. I have to surrender my will to his will. And so do you in every area of your life. I'm amazed at how many Christians want to see America return to God and to once again be a nation that honors God, and yet they're not willing to personally surrender to God. Can I tell you, it doesn't work that way. How in the world can we ever be one nation under God if you and I are not willing to be a people surrendered to God in every area of our life? Maybe we need to replace the word nation with another word to help us better understand our personal responsibility in this whole thing. I mean, what if we were to be one community under God, one neighborhood under God? Yeah, yeah, what if we were responsible to help our community and our neighborhood come under the covering and the authority of God? What would that look like? I think about the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 10. Here was a man that saw someone in need who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And the Samaritan went out of his way to help that man, bandaging up his wounds, putting him on his own donkey and took him to an inn and then paid with his own money for the innkeeper to, to care for the man until he was healed. In that parable, Jesus was teaching us that this is the way that we're supposed to care for people in our community and not just the people we like or who look like us or vote like us, but even those who might be against us. See, the man who was lying in the ditch was a Jewish man, and the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. And Jesus very intentionally was teaching us that the Samaritan didn't respond in a way that would have been expected towards this Jewish man. Instead, he serves him selflessly. He gives completely, and in doing so, he models the way that God loves us. The Good Samaritan brings a little bit of heaven to earth right there in his community by loving the way that God loves, by giving the way that God gives. He carried with him the very nature and character of God right into the middle of that situation. So, so what would it look like if you and I love people in our community that way? Not just the people that we like to hang out with or feel comfortable around, but everybody. What would we be willing to do to go out of our way to serve, to give, and to, to love selflessly as Christ has loved us? I believe that we could bring a little bit of heaven to earth ourselves, and we would see God begin to heal relationships, restore our communities, and open up doors for the message of Jesus to impact people living right across the street from us. So you and I, we can change our community and our neighborhood, and it can be one community under God. But what if we need to make it even more personal than that? Instead of just being a neighborhood under God, what if we made it one family under God? Because your neighborhood is just made up of a lot of families, made up of your family. Maybe you think, well, I can't really change my whole community, Todd, but you can change your family. What would it look like for your family to be one family under God, living under his authority, following his ways? That what he says goes in your home, in the way that you love each other, in the way that you talk to each other, in the way that you treat each other. It's getting quiet in church today, isn't it, right? <laughs> but this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where our faith in Jesus gets to be lived out. This is uh, your greatest opportunity to love selflessly. It's with those that are closest to you.
Sometimes when we talk about loving and serving the world, it can sound so noble, so godly. But I believe one of the godliest things that you can do is love the people closest to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the closest neighbors are the ones that are living under the same roof as you. The Bible has a lot to say about how we build a home on the foundations of God's word. How husbands and wives are to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and laid his life down for her. See, when we lovingly submit to each other in the home, we are modeling the way that Christ has loved us and laid his life down for us. He, he put our needs before his own. And when we love that way, it doesn't lead to being mistreated or walked on. I mean, it opens the door for Jesus to walk into our homes and into our families. It invites his nature and his character into the most important relationships that we have. When, when children honor their parents, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, there's a blessing that falls on you as kids. Paul reminds us that in honoring and obeying our parents is the first commandment that actually comes with a promise that you're gonna be blessed and have a long life. Who doesn't want that? See, see, one family under God changes how we talk to each other, how we treat each other with respect and love. I'm afraid that too often the people closest to us get our leftovers, right? I mean, we, we spend so much of our lives hustling and making it happen out in the world, dealing with the, the pressures at work or at school, that by the time we get home, we're done. We, we give the most important people in our lives our leftovers. Leftover emotional bandwidth, leftover patience if you got any left, leftover grace, and often we end up treating the stranger at Starbucks nicer than we do our own family members. What if we turn that around? What if, since we know that God wants us to love and serve those closest to us, to honor our, our parents, to mutually submit to our spouses, what if we did that in our families? What if we showed respect and honor at home first? What, what if we prayed together as a family? I mean, it doesn't have to be a 30-minute prayer meeting. It can just be a couple minutes before everybody rushes out in the morning or you're putting the kids to bed. Just take a few minutes to pray and maybe read a scripture together. Find ways to bring God into your home and make room for God in your family. What if you could echo the words of Joshua when he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't know what the rest of everybody's doing. I can't control what my neighbors are doing or what's happening in Washington, D.C. But as for me and my house and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. We will be one family under God. If we're ever going to be one nation under God, then we have to become families that are under God. But let me take it one step further, because if we're ever gonna be one nation under God, it's gotta get personal. Am I gonna be a man under God? Are you gonna be a person who is under God's authority? Because we will never be a nation under God if we're a bunch of individuals who don't recognize the sovereignty and authority of God in our personal lives. See, that phrase, under God, carries with it weight. <laughs> It's a profound, life-changing commitment to allowing God to shape our lives. There's a scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It says this, 
God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. That means that God is going to shape us into the image of Christ, remove those things in, in my life that, that don't look like Jesus and don't sound like Jesus, replacing my nature with more and more of the nature of Jesus. This is a process that we call sanctification. Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians chapter 2 when he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, helping you want to obey him and then helping you do what he wants. Now there's a lot in that one verse. Let me unpack it for a minute. First, Paul said, you gotta work out your salvation. Now it's important to note that Paul was writing this to a bunch of Christians, people who had already confessed their faith in Jesus. They already had salvation. Yet he says, keep working out your salvation. Now what, what he's not saying is that you've gotta work for salvation. Many times Paul tells us that salvation is a free gift of God's grace that it's not by works so that no one can boast. See, salvation isn't based on what you do, it's based on what Jesus has already done on the cross. And all that we have to do is personally receive what he's already done. But here in this scripture, Paul says, work out your salvation. It's like, uh, like going to work out at the gym. It takes time and effort and consistency to build a strong body. So it is spiritually. Paul is saying it's gonna take focus and effort and discipline to build a strong spiritual body. Have you ever seen those people that show up at the gym? They're all like, you know, laser focused, serious. They got a gallon jug of water and some chart they're writing down the weights that they lifted, right? That's not me. Like when I show up at the gym, uh, I do a few curls, uh, you know, hit a few machines. And then after about 20 minutes, I'm ready to go get a bagel. Anybody with me on that, right? Spiritually, Paul says, that is not gonna cut it, Todd. You gotta work out your salvation. It's gonna take some effort on your part to become more like Jesus. Many times in the New Testament, we are told to make every effort when it comes to our spiritual growth. In 2 Timothy, it says, make every effort to give yourself to God as a worker who is not ashamed. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, make every effort to be holy, which means set apart for God. In 2 Peter, it says, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. Make every effort. That phrase actually means to make every effort. It means you're not gonna quit, not gonna stop. You're gonna keep working at this. Now, remember, we're talking about being a person who is under God, under his, under his rule. It's about giving him access to all of us. It's about allowing his spirit to do his full work in your life. Now, the good news is, uh, this isn't something that you have to do on your own. It's something that the Holy Spirit does in you. But you and I have to work with the Holy Spirit. See, the way the Holy Spirit renews our mind is when we fill it with the truth from God's word, right? You can't renew your mind if you keep filling it up with the same old trash on Netflix and Hulu. Hulu ain't gonna make you holy, honey, right? But every day, when you read the Bible, you're giving the Holy Spirit something to work with, to renew you. Every Sunday when you get to church, you're giving the Holy Spirit something to work with. As the word and the, and the worship are being declared over your life, 
you begin to realize some of the lies you've been listening to and you begin to replace those lies with the truth of God. That verse says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you, helping you want to obey him. That God at work in you is the Holy Spirit of God in you, doing that work from the inside out. See, this process of sanctification, it's an inside out job. It's not about a bunch of, of rules or do's and don'ts. This idea of being a person under God is allowing the Holy Spirit to point out those things in your life that, that aren't lining up with the nature of Jesus. And then you ask him to change you, surrendering that area to God's rule because you are a person that's under God. So it might be an area like in, in the words that you speak, if, if the words that you speak to people or about people. If those words put other people down or in a negative light, the Holy Spirit is gonna convict you of that and say, don't say that about them. Don't, don't say that to them. Find words that echo my words over their life. And as you do, what you're doing is you're bringing your words in alignment with God's word. Or it could be in your thought life. When you allow yourself to think about whatever you want, whoever you want, whenever you want, your thought life runs unrestrained, out of control. And a person whose thought life is unrestrained, the Bible says is like a city without walls. You have no defense against the enemy and his attack. So the Holy Spirit is gonna ask you to bring your thought life under God, under his rule in your life. So you'll start thinking about something that's not in line with God's truth and he'll remind you of Philippians chapter four to say, fix your thoughts, fix your mind on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about those things. And as you do, what are you doing? You're actually bringing your thought life under God. Or it could be in an area of finance. For many Christians, this is an area that they have the hardest time trusting God in and bringing under God's control. And I believe the reason really all goes back to trust. Am I gonna trust God to be my source and my supplier? Or am I gonna trust my own ability to make money and invest and close the next deal? See, as long as you see yourself or your employer or your investments as your source and sustainer, you're always gonna live from a place of, of scarcity, worried that you gotta hold on to what you got so you don't run out. But once you see God as your source, and you realize his supply never runs out, it brings freedom and life into this area of your life. But that's not gonna happen until you bring this area of your life under God. So let me ask you, what do you need to personally bring under the authority and rule of God in your life? The only way we will ever be one nation under God is as you and I are individuals living under God, under his lordship, surrendering to his authority in our lives and allowing him to continually shape and make us more like Jesus. You know, on weekends like this weekend, we love to sing, God bless America. We like to point out all the ways that our nation needs to return to God. But the truth is, if we wanna see our nation return to God, then it's gonna start with you and me. We have to be a people who are under God's authority in every area of our lives. When you came in today, you should have received a small index card and a pen or pencil. I want you to take that out, please. I believe there's even some in the seat back in front of you if you didn't get one. I want everybody to have one just for this next part. I want you to write down today what it is that you need to personally bring under the authority of God's rule in your life. It might be your words. Maybe they've been too harsh, not filled with God's grace. Or maybe it's your thought life and you, and you need to bring that in alignment with God and give God authority there. 
could be your finances. You haven't trusted him yet in that area. Or it could be in your family or marriage. You need to resubmit your home to God's rule. Be one family, one home under God. A simple way to start that this week is just take time together to pray. If you miss a day, it's okay. Just start the next day. Invite the presence of God to rule in your home and in your relationships. And that I'm not gonna have you turn these cards in. I want you to take this home with you. And this week, I want you to pray every day. Lord, today, I resubmit my words, my mouth under your control, my mind, my thought life, my finances, everything, whatever it is that you need to bring under the authority of God so you can be one person under God. I want you to pray about that every day. Thank you again for spending time with us today. If you're looking to take a step in discovering the more that God has in store for you, just text the word podcast to the number 441-441 and then select the option that applies to you. And if you enjoyed this message, just make sure that you subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. A special thanks to all of you who so generously give to all that God is calling us to do together. It's really because of you that everything we do is possible. We'll see you right back here for next week's message.